All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, I'm proud to introduce uh, Howard Holton. Howard is the CTO of GigaOM, an industry analyst firm, and has been in the CIO, CTO, CISO seat for the last 17 years, and has spent 35 years in IT overall. And Howard, I uh, I hear you wrote your first piece of commercial software at 11? I did. I did. My dad owned a law office, the only law office in the little town that I was in, and he was struggling with... Um, it's called pleading papers. It was a special format at the time. And basically, a paralegal or an attorney would write a plead, which is something you're going to file with the court, then put it on a floppy disk and hand it to a legal secretary who would bring it up on one screen while, while she typed on pleading pre-printed pleading paper on an IBM Selectric typewriter. So it was completely duplicative work. And so um, I developed a piece of software called Plead Perfect that ran on top of WordPerfect that gave um, legal-specific templates and watermarking so you didn't have to duplicate the work. Nice. And you did this at 11. I did. Just for the heck of it, right? Uh, I, I had built a little piece of software for tracking my baseball card collection. My parents thought, like my parents were both into sports and they thought if they got me baseball cards that I'd get into sports. No, I just got into statistics. <laughs> and so I built a little piece of software to keep track of it and kind of track the values of my cards. So I knew kind of what went up and what went down every month. Um, and that got me started in computers. And then when my dad said this, I built this piece of software and he started telling all his law office buddies who were then like, Ooh, can we buy it? This seems amazing. So he cl closed the law office, started a computer company. We went around selling it to all his law office buddies. And then, uh, and then I built Lantastic networks over ArcNet to do simple file share file and print sharing. Wow. And then never, never left IT. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was presenting to my school board and was the largest non-construction contractor that my, my school district had. And all of this while you're still a kid before. So, wow. <laughs> That's such yeah, a so, different experience than, than I had, man. I didn't even start in IT until I was my mid twenties. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, uh, I was right place, right time. Yeah. Right? Um, we were, we were, Growing up, we were poor. Uh, my dad never made any money at the law office. My dad was a very much a hippie. And so he'd always trade people for legal services, which doesn't actually work because legal services, you need those right now. Uh -huh. And the thing you're trading, you don't need right now. You know what I mean? So my dad would be like, oh, sure, I'll trade you services in kind. Uh, and the guy would be like, oh, I'm a contractor. I like I do. I'm a carpenter. I'm a master tile layer, whatever. And then my dad would go back and go, okay, cool. I'm ready for your thing. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, shit. You know what I mean? A legal document. <laughs> right. Right. So, so he never, we never made any money. Um, well, but the cool thing was my dad always said, like, if you have an idea, try it. What's the worst that happens? You end up back where you were when you, before you started. So, so yeah, so I did that. Um, never went to college, right? I, I, I worked all the way through when people were going to university because I was making good money. Why not? Yeah. So did you run into any barriers because of that? Cause I know absolutely. Well, my did. CFO was, as soon as somebody got that piece of paper, they got a 20 to 30% raise. So, yeah. So I, I, yes, I absolutely did. Um, however, uh, when everybody else was graduating college, uh, I already had 10 years of experience. Right. Right. So that helped a lot. Um, it slowed my acceleration for sure. And there were jobs I simply didn't get because I didn't have a degree. Um, at, at now in my forties, it makes no difference whatsoever. Yeah. By now the degrees are just, a piece of paper from when we were younger, or you've got all of the experience and you've got the resume to show it. 
Right. And that's what makes the the difference, right? Um, the other thing that that really made a difference is um I'm a big fan of being a lifelong learner. And, and I like I learned how to do that when I was really young. I learned how to learn when I was really young. And I've I've continued to explore new techniques to learning uh for my whole life. Um and the one thing that I was able to show really early on was I don't care that I don't have a degree. I can learn as fast or faster than anybody else you can find. And then I can apply that. And now that I'm in my forties, I'm still really, really, really quick with new concepts because I was forced to learn, to learn things to a depth and breadth to cover for the fact that I didn't have a degree. I had to, I had to prove myself twice as hard. And so, so it's really worked out long-term for me. I wouldn't advise it. It's, it's far more work than just getting a degree. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, kind of consider myself the same along the same threads i went and got the degrees but i would pick up concepts so much faster than than those around me um and could see a little bit further so that that ability to learn and understand and see things um i think that i was given that gift also at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we expect to win and we expect our IT directors to win. And one of those areas where we know that we can help you win is internet service providers. As an IT director tasked with managing internet connectivity, few vendor relationships can prove more painfully frustrating than the one with your internet service provider. The array of challenges seems never ending from unreliable uptime and insufficient bandwidth to poor customer service and hidden fees. It's like getting stuck in in rush hour traffic, dealing with ISPs can try one's patience even on the best of days. So whether you are managing one location or a hundred locations, our back office support team and vendor partners are the best in the industry. And the best part about this is none of this will ever cost you a dime due to the partnership and the sponsors that we have behind the scenes at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Let us show you how we can manage away the mediocrity and hit it out of the park. We start by mapping all of the available fiber routes and we use our 1.2 billion in combined customer buying power in massive economy of scale to map all of your locations, to overcome construction fees, to use industry historical data, to encourage providers to compete for the lowest possible pricing, to negotiate the lowest rates guaranteed, and to provide fast response times in hours, not days. And we leverage aggregators and wholesale relationships to ensure you get the best possible pricing available in the marketplace. And on top of all of this, you get proactive network monitoring and proactive alerts so that you're not left calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND to enter in a ticket number and wonder, why is my internet connection down? In short, we are the partner that you have always wanted who understands your needs, your frustrations, and knows what you need without you having to ask. So we're still human, but we are some of the best and we aim to win. This all starts with a value discovery call where we find out what you have, why you have it, and what's on your roadmap. All you need to do is email internet at popularit.net and say, I want help managing all of my internet garbage. Please make my life easier and we'll get right on it for you. Have a wonderful day. You know, one of the things that, that we talked about in our pre-call, um, you wanted to talk about the uh, power of language and you know, being thoughtful. And, and I think the experience that you had growing up and, and learning that way and being that continuous learner leans into that or, or why this is an important topic to you. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, right? Again, my dad was a law professor and owned a law office. And so um, language was really important in my house. 
my weekend activity was we redlined the LA Times, right? So we went through and picked out all the, and that was, that was my homework from my dad every weekend. And he's a hippie. And, and he's a hippie. It's the weirdest thing, but, <laughs> but he was very particular. Um, he was a theater, theater major for his undergrad. Okay. Right? Um, and that, that gives you the, the combination of law and, and theater give you a real appreciation for language. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I learned real young and one of the things that I say, and I, and I firmly believe, right. Language creates thoughts, thoughts, create actions. Okay. Right? So if you, if you speak in a positive way, if you speak in a correct way, you create the right image in someone's mind then the output that you get is also going to be correct. As soon as we start muddling language, as soon as we start allowing literally to mean both literally and figuratively, we now no longer are, are in control of the thoughts that are created by our language and thus the actions that come from those thoughts, right? So it's really important that when we use language, we use the proper language. That's why architecture in our field is so dangerous. Marketing, getting a hold of a term and turning it into mean a hundred different things where you no longer know what it means. All right. Well, and I, so that makes me wonder what your personal philosophy and thoughts are around the social media and the 30 second bites that people are consuming and, and learning off of today. Well, it's not learning. They, they may be gaining knowledge, but knowledge isn't learning. Okay. Right. Um, I have an infinite amount of information about world history as an example. Right. I don't know anything about world history. I know very little about world history. Like if you take every piece of information that's bouncing around in my head about world history and say, Howard, what do you actually know? It's going to be relatively small in comparison. Right. right. And that's part of that whole language thing. Right. Knowledge, the ability to know something means I can teach it, means I can explain it, means I can go fairly deep into it. Information isn't knowledge. Information is just pieces of data bouncing around in my head. Right. Knowledge means I know why a thing occurs, or at least a lot of the why. Information just means I can recite crap. And yeah. social media gives you the ability to recite crap. But but let's be honest, in 30 seconds, you have no idea what the qualifications are of the person who's writing. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, my kids don't care. <laughs> sure. If, if it's online, it must be real. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think there was a time when that was a reasonable thing to say, not, not with the internet. It was never true with the internet. Right. But if you go back to, to when we only had broadcast television and the fairness doctrine was law, there were penalties for lying on news broadcasts. Right. Right. Um, it's important for people to understand that again, as we've allowed language to be manipulated, we've allowed thoughts to be manipulated. Thus we've allowed actions to be manipulated. Man, this this could be such a deep conversation. I, I, <laughs> I enjoy the thoughts that you're bringing to me and, and the uh, definition. Because, you know, for the most part, most everybody I deal with, everybody I talk to, it's, it's an exercise in trying to explain things to them using the language that they understand or they know, um, but trying to stay in the basis of factual um, and speaking in metaphors, half the time I speak in metaphors just to try to make it easier for them to understand. But now I can see how that's dangerous too. Uh, no, metaphors are hugely helpful as long as you're not using a metaphor as an official definition for a thing. Right now, understand a concept, we should use all the tools that are available to us. And metaphors work really well because, again, we're painting a picture in someone's mind. 
And, and a metaphor is a way, the, a good metaphor is always a well understood picture that then allows you to associate it with a new concept and it, and it speeds up someone's recognition of a, of a concept. Um, one of the things I learned years ago, years and years ago. So, so I do have to say, tell your audience, um, uh, you, you kind of set yourself up for this conversation when you said we've done like 200 of these and I immediately went, oh, well then I have to really bring something new so that it doesn't feel like it's been repeated. Right. Um, yeah. So we, I, speaking I, business to the, the business side of the house, we got that. We know that. For sure. <laughs> sure. So I learned years ago, the most valuable skill I can have is my ability to present. Right. right? Especially within IT people, a lot of whom are um, shy. They don't like to be in front of people. Well, I was also a theater per theater kid, right? And so standing up in front of a, of a crowd and delivering information is was was no problem for me. Um, and one of the things that I always did, um, and even I still do to this day, was I present definitions. And so this is 2018, 2019, 2020. I'm CTO for Hitachi Ventara. I'm standing up on stage. Uh, I'm going to be standing up on stage and someone wants to review my deck. And so I show them my deck and they're like, yeah, you need to cut these definition slides out. Everybody knows what that means. And I said, no, 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 I'll cut the rest of it out. I'm not cutting the definitions out. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because if we don't define what we're talking about, so we're all on the, all on the same page, then I have no way to know, do they know what I mean when I say these things? Or are we all just going to make an assumption? So they're like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to outvote you. So just go for it. And so every single time I presented the deck, people take pictures of slides. Any presentation anybody does, there's pictures. Do you know what the slides are that everyone took a picture of? All of the definition. Absolutely. Every single time. Because they're like, oh my God, somebody actually wrote it down in yeah. a way that I can understand, in a way that makes sense, and in, in a way that makes the differentiation clear. I'm definitely taking a picture of this because I'm just going to use that. And they right? latch into that definition and start using it. Okay. And it becomes yeah. common language. And, and, and it, now it be, that becomes the way they're going to talk about that thing inside their organization, which means it's the way they think about that thing. And it drives the actions that come out of that thing. Wow. Very interesting thought. I, I'm so glad that you wanted to bring something unique and new and, and <laughs> solid to this. So thank you. So expand more. Tell me more. <laughs> Give me some other examples of like, what's one of the things that What's one of the pet peeves that you have of um, a misdefined term that is in common usage? Digital transformation. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of that one like, okay, what do you mean? And, so, and yeah. Yeah, so now the whole audience is just nodding because uh -huh. we've all heard bad definitions of digital transformation. Right? It, I swear that's in your LinkedIn, that you're a digital transformation. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. And and I get a lot of people that are like, I'm so burned out on digital transformation. And I go, I'm not because it's necessary. Yeah. Right. Digital transformation is changing your company to deliver its products in the way your customers wish they could receive them. And the wish is the important part. And in, in the way they want them. I think want that's part of it too. That's that's that is without a doubt. Well, it, well, it's it's wish. It is for sure wish. And, and I'll explain the difference. So let's take Uber. Anyone that says Uber's not disruptive hasn't been paying attention. Oh, yeah. Right? So if you had interviewed a thousand people as they exit a New York City taxi cab, and you can replace New York with any other place, right. and said, what, what did you want when you hired a taxi cab? Like, what would you want to change about the taxi experience? They would have said three things. They would have said, I couldn't understand the driver and the driver couldn't understand me. Every time they hit a bump, I thought I was going to die. And I 
pretty sure I sat in vomit. Uh, okay. Right? Those are the three things that you would get because the cars were terrible. I, I, I can never understand the driver. I'm hard of hearing anyways. And that, you know, you always get into a cab on a Monday morning after Sunday night, or God forbid you get in on a Saturday morning or sun, Sunday morning after a Saturday night. And uh, they always have that smell of a little too much bleach and a little too much other stuff. And you're like, hmm, this is not going to be a pleasant experience. Well, had Uber set out to deliver on the want, they would have delivered clean cars with native speaking drivers. That's right. not what anybody wanted. The wish is, why did I get a cab in the first place? I got a cab because I had to be at a specific location. Right. I have to be there at a specific time. And really, I'm paying. It's a hired service. So where am I? Tell me where am I going and how long it's going to get there. Give me the price, what it's going to cost to get there since you know the source and the destination. And I don't like being an, feeling like an idiot waving on the side of the road. So tell me where you're going to pick me up. That's the wish I had when I got a cab. The fact that it was clean was the side effect of the gig economy and needing to keep your ratings high. No one was going to give them $10 billion, going to give Uber $10 billion to buy a fleet of cars and hire drivers. So they just made a gig economy out of it, right? That's the difference between the want and the wish. Sometimes we don't know what we really want. We don't really, like, we're not introspective. Humans aren't, not naturally. And uh -huh. so when you ask people, what do you want? You tend to get the thing that's three inches in front of the ask. What you really want to know is, what's the thing that drives the ask from its origination? That's the wish. Okay. And, right. and I see so many times how how every you're right everybody gets focused on that that so what's the definition of the thing that's three inches in front digitizing with you're just digitizing if all you're doing is three inches in front you're just digitizing okay so the digital transformation is when you digital transformation is changing your is being is becoming data driven in how you deliver your products to make sure that you're always aiming for the wish that your customer has and the channel that they're trying to execute that wish through Right. If if all that you're doing is changing your processes to become digital and automated, that's just digitizing. You're right. just further digitizing. There's no transformation. That's not transformative. Right? right. Transformative is we're going to restructure our organization to focus on delivering to a customer that we don't even know we have. Right. Digital transformation requires things like customer segmentation and customer identification to be key points within the room. Yeah. Wow. Right? It's <laughs> Uh, you're awakening so many different <laughs> neurons inside of my head because it's like I've had conversations with people and, and they wanted to use the term Uberization. And all they're talking about is creating um, some kind of a, as a service, you know, taking this thing and turning it into as a service yep. versus, and, and what I was always trying to aim for is more along the lines of what you're talking about with the digital transformation and the disruption. Because it's got to be a transformative change to this this thing, and and the other aspect of it that I always looked at was how they just radically changed that market, and and it's like you know streaming streaming video, streaming music compared to what we used to have when we used to go buy albums or CDs or things like that. Um, and now we just stream it and I don't necessarily purchase the song, but I can call it up anytime I want to and listen to it because I pay for a streaming service. Well, I mean, look at, look at Netflix. Netflix is the ultimate digital transformation company, 
right? More so even than Uber, because what Netflix has done is continue to transform themselves, right? Now, now every company eventually gets to a size where they kind of start to bloat and become too heavy and, and kind of betray the thing that they started at, right? It's just, there's, there's no way to manage the number of people that you have and the number of decisions that have to be made without bureaucracy. And, and it's unfortunate, but look at, look at, look at Netflix at the early days, right? The main competitor was Blockbuster. Right. And so the Blockbuster experience was basically you go to Blockbuster on Friday night to pick up some movies to take home to the family, right? For for family movie night, pizza uh-huh. and corn in a movie. And you go, ooh, cool. Um, let's go see what's new. Oh, that one's out, and that one's out, and that one's out, and that one's out. Okay, cool. So now we're stuck with Princess Bride or Die Hard, which do we want to watch for the 50th time? <laughs> yeah. Right? So you bring a movie home. The next day, you didn't watch it that night because you've already seen it. The next day, you don't watch it, and you forgot to take it back. By Tuesday, it's still sitting on the counter, and you go, oh, well, I guess I own another copy of Die Hard. Yeah, because that's how much you had to pay in late fees. Correct, correct, right? So then Netflix comes along and they go, okay, well, if no one likes late fees and late fees are the thing that everyone wishes they didn't have to deal with, let's just get rid of late fees. Let's give you a website where you can create a queue of all the movies that you want to watch. Then it doesn't matter if it's in or not. We're just going to send you the next one that's available in your queue. Take as much time as you want. When you're done, drop it right back in the mail and we'll send you the next thing in your queue. And if a movie is coming out in six months, you can still add it to your queue. The second it becomes available, we'll send it to you. It's not a problem because that was the disruption they needed at the time to combat something like Blockbuster, right? Then streaming comes out and Netflix goes, yeah, we're just going to lead that because that's actually better for us and cheaper for us than shipping an infinite number of DVDs all around the world or all around the U.S. Yeah. And then they start getting data analytics and they start creating shows like House of Cards, these big, deep, involved dramas. And they sent a 13-picture deal with Adam Sandler. Has anyone wonder, ever wondered why they create House of Cards, which couldn't be further away from Adam Sandler, and yet they sent a 13-picture deal with Adam Sandler? They're trying to hit multiple audiences. No, the data actually said when someone watches a movie, they're really just looking for popcorn. They're just right. looking for something that they can enjoy popcorn for 90 minutes. That, that was the ideal dwell time. However, when you watch a series, right, something that's got a that's got length to it, uh-huh. especially because Netflix allows, allows you to binge, you're looking to get deeply involved in these really interesting, really serious character stories, right? And so I want House of Cards, which gives me 10 to 15 hours of content per season, but for popcorn, I only need 90 minutes, and Adam Sandler does popcorn better than anybody else. <laughs> right? Okay. okay. And they, so, they were so successful at it for so many years that the MPA, that the the movie critic industry changed the rules, right? The 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 Academy of Motion Picture changed the rules to stop Netflix from from winning everything by forcing them to do a theatrical release for every every movie that would be entered for Academy consideration. That's di- that's that's disruption. That's digital transformation. Yeah. Okay. Right? Or something like Amazon, right? Um, yeah. So everybody's familiar with Amazon books. Prime. Yeah, right. I mean, they started out with books, right? In 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 a garage. And eventually they got to the point where they, they were so transformative and they were so agile that they'd have these, these, these big meetings where it was basically throw an idea against the wall and let's see if anything's interesting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so somebody says, hey, what if we can give everybody free shipping and two-day, free two-day shipping on everything? And they just said it in a meeting and they went, okay, cool, let's try it. Okay, so think about the Amazon catalog in circa 2008. Still, a, it's a massive catalog. Right. Hundreds of thousands, millions of items. All of a sudden, you're tasked with 
someone came up with the idea to give everyone free sh- free two day shipping. How long is that going to take you to implement? It depends on the systems and all of the different things. It, it do, does, but, but like, but it, but it's also the bureaucracy. It's how long it takes yeah. the company to make a decision. It's it's legal's got to get involved. Right. The procurement's got to get involved. And logistics has got to get involved. Right? Took Amazon six weeks. Yeah, I was. Or do they? You just say okay, well, just ship it and um, zero out the price. I mean, in in any other company I've been at, it would take a year. Yeah, yeah, right? to get through it all the politics. Just, just to get through all the politics. No, Amazon delivered Prime in six weeks. Wow, I did not know that from the uh, concept to the delivery of it was six weeks. I know it took a while for it to to really ramp up. It and- did well initially. It was only it was only. Um, uh, warehoused Amazon products, right? Shipped and sold by Amazon was all that was available available for Prime initially, right? But the ability to get there in six weeks is insane. And again, right. comes from digital transformation. Why? Because because we're trying to get to where our customers want to be. Yeah. They truly want to be. What their wish is. And their wish is, I don't have to leave to find these things. Well, if if shipping is is anywhere from three days to nine days, and Home Depot has it now, and Best Buy has it now, or Target has it now. I'm just going to leave my house and get it. Right. Yeah. If shipping in two days. I don't need to leave my house. I don't need it that fast. Yeah, I, I'm willing to sit around for that. Right. And then, then they started throwing in some of the uh, streaming services and some of the other services with it, and suddenly now they're one of the main channels for that consumption. And and they're now they're reselling other. Um, streaming services. Yeah, I mean Amazon is Amazon is an amazing logistics company, right? Yeah. And logistics <laughs> comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you know them understanding what their customers are looking for, what their customers want, and their willingness to go find it and make it available is is an insane kind of situation. Kind of kind of tra- it's very 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 transformative. Okay, so what are some of the transformative things that you? done that you've helped instantiate and build and and bring forth what's what's one of your crown jewels um my things are a little different um some of the transformative things that i look at are um you know how do i reduce maintenance costs to improve customer experience at a theme park okay right um how do I help a foreign country support the rollout of electric vehicles in a city that hasn't seen an electric grid upgrade since it was bombed in World War II? Right now, think about that one for a second. Yeah, I'm like, okay, how quickly this one happened? <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, now think about that for a second. Okay, you have six thousand electric vehicles that need to be plugged into the grid and charged and used within a city center, and your Electric grid utilization goes anywhere from 93% to 107%. And normally it runs at? That's normally what it runs at, between 93% and 107% without the electric cars. Oh, without the electric. Okay, I thought you threw the electric in and and that's... Now you're going to add electric cars to that and go, yeah, this is what we want to do. So you need to balance charging times. You need to balance utilization. You need to know how far is the car going to travel on its route. Um, no electric vehicle is designed to use a hundred percent of its available battery capacity on it in every day. Right. Right. So if you've got one that uses 60% and one that uses 40%, you can balance the charging to make sure that they're not all charging at the same time to make sure that they have the capacity and you may never charge back up to a hundred percent. 
right? You may, you may charge up to 80%. You may also say during the day, hey, if I've got 2,500 of these 6,000 cars plugged into the grid at during peak hours, right? Maybe those become batteries that start to feed back into the grid. And maybe I reclaim that, maybe I refill that capacity at night. Right. Because okay. if, if the maximum I'm going to go is 60%, then I have at least 30% of the battery capacity that I can use as a capacitor on the grid. Right. So these things start to become really interesting mathematical kind of conversations when you start looking into the potential of what we can do when we're talking, you know, scale. Yeah. Right. More interesting thoughts. Okay. So this is this is some of the interesting stuff that I that I uh, I have been lucky enough to be party party of, right? Um, you know, there's some interesting things in manufacturing. Like um, uh, everyone who works in manufacturing familiar with the three M's: man, machine, and material. Okay. Okay. Um, here's a neat question for your audience, and we'll we'll wait about ten seconds before I give the answer. So, um, one one field of artificial intelligence is computer vision. Right, using AI to do to do object recognition, motion recognition, recognition over video. Um, at some point, computer vision is going to be more accurate than human vision. The computer is going to be better better at recognizing objects than humans. Can you take a guess at what year that will happen? No clue. With it before twenty fifty, uh, absolutely before twenty fifty. Twenty twenty eight. Twenty fifteen. It's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so okay so how many we, of you got that right <laughs> <laughs> so we can use computer vision to analyze machine there's a bunch of things we can do to analyze machine right vibration sensors actually tend to be the most valuable thing we can do analyzing the uh the quality of the machine on a production line okay so okay. let's say we analyze the machine so now we know if the machine's operating 100 percent. great now we can also use computer vision to analyze material among other things computer vision we can use millimeter wave uh, LIDAR, those sort of things, right? Um, to analyze the material. So now we know the machine's working properly. Now we don't know all of the material is within spec, right? But now the problem comes down to the man. And in the past, what we've done is we've created these really extensive computer models to look at man, right? And so we take kind of the ideal person, we have them go through the station exactly as you're supposed to go through the station, um, and then we put the, the person there who's actually running the station and the computer model fails completely because the person they chose to, to do the demo that they based the model off of, um, was left-handed and five foot 11. And now the person running the station is right-handed and five foot two, uh, right? Okay. So the kinesiology of that, of that other person is going to be totally different. The person they had doing the model was 22. The person running the station is 57. See, and I just assume right. it's like work ethic differences, not no. physical differences. No, there's kinesi kinetic differences between the people, right? right? Yeah. What happens if you're in injured on a Saturday and you come into work on, on Monday, right? You hurt your hurt your dominant hand, now you got to switch to your non-dominant hand. And so what we did was we, we developed computer models that used white that, that used wireframes. And the wireframe was built off the person themselves running the station. So no model. The model was built off the person who's actually working the station, right? So we don't care if they follow the instructions perfectly. What we care is that they do something repeated the roughly the same way each time, Okay. right? Why do we go through all of this? We go through all of this because the most expensive thing you can have happen on a manufacturing line is a recall. 
Right. And we looked at recalls. We went, okay, well, if the machine's out of spec, that's going to lead to a recall. Great. We can we can now monitor for that. If the material is out of spec, like think about the um airbag recall. Right. We can we can, you know, that causes a recall. Cool. So we fix that. Then what we found was there's this big question mark around the man, around the person that stands at the station. And over and over and over again, we came back to, we really don't know how to do that until we we created a wireframe for each individual worker at the factory line. And then we just watch for when they do something different than they should. And what happens is we don't stop anything. We just flag that product for additional quality control at the end. So when you get to the quality control stage and you're doing random picks for quality control, you always pick the one where the person did something out of character for the person. Okay, so it's not so random. Correct. Correct. It's not random, but it catches that product each and every time. And then we're able to validate, okay, like they switch to their left hand, so they're not torquing the screws down quite as hard as they used to, or they're stripping two of the screws because the angle is now weird for them. Cool. We just pull the product out. It's way cheaper. We don't have to worry about a recall. Now everything else goes out correct. And those products that that we pulled for extra quality control, they either passed or they didn't, but we're always looking at the right ones. Now, no more recall. Now your cost goes down. Right. Yeah. Because now you've stopped the product from entering into the... You Correct. just stopped it. You stopped that added expense. Correct. And the expense, I don't care about the individual item. The expense is I have to pull the whole lot back. But I don't have to pull the whole lot back if I know the individual item is bad. And I know where that quality control issue is. And why? Okay. Right. How pervasive is this? It's not. It's not. Yeah. This sounds not. like it's. we're on the edge of this. Of, of You understand it. I've never heard of it. But I've never yeah. had to deal with the manufacturing line yet. So, okay. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. And then how soon is it going to become that that the variance thrown in by the man in there, they're going to want to remove that? Yeah, there's a lot of things where it's almost impossible to remove the man, especially delicate things. Um, humans, humans have the ability to operate with a delicacy that machines simply don't at this stage. Right. Today. Um, t- today. Today. Um, and then there's some... Um, d- degrees of freedom, right? Motion that that machines have a problem with, angles that machines have a problem with that man that humans just don't. Um, I think we're, I think we're a long way from humans being removed from the manufacturing process completely, right? Um, lights out manufacturing, which is which is no humans involved, is is I I still think a long ways away for most things. There are some things where where we'll absolutely get there, yeah. right? Um, where where delicacy is just not is just simply not required, right? Where the the product being manufactured is sim- simple enough that you can have a fully automated manufacturing line. That being said, those are likely part creation rather than product creation. Okay, yeah, I see that because it, it, those things are so uniform and and yeah, just don't require that all of the the different things that you brought up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think this is where we're going to start to see some interesting things. You, you layer additive manufacturing on top of that, right? Things like 3D printers that can print in any number of materials. Right. Then you layer on top of that generative AI, which I know everybody's tired of hearing of, but but does have the ability to be transformative. And you can actually get to the point where like using generative AI, you could design a house by describing the house and have it end up architecturally sound. Like think about how valuable that would be. Right. Do you know like the 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 code for your area around how a king stud has to be built in a doorway 
to to um yeah, not no, I. The computer, does. The computer <laughs> right. does. And if you were able to describe, this is where I want the door. This is how I want the door to be, right? I want a 36-inch wide, eight-foot-tall, solid door at this spot in the house. The computer would already know, okay, cool. The king stud, king stud's required there to make this work. Or this is how you properly frame in a window, right? Because mm-hmm. if you've ever looked at the framing for a window, it's it's insane the amount of support that's put into a window. Right. Well, what if you didn't have to know any of that? What if you didn't have to be a a partial materials engineer and overcompensate with materials because the computer simply knew it? All of a sudden, your spans start to get far more interesting because you don't need the beams that are there because you didn't have a materials engineer on on hand to certify the the material load. Instead, the computer can do it automatically, and all you have to do is describe what you're looking for. Okay. Right. The, the, right. the potential for the future, I think, is going to be is just going to be incredible. So now you just take and create that that application that uh, it's almost like ordering Uber to pick me up and take me where I want to go. Now I just start moving the things around in the house the way I want. I design the stairway the way that I want, get the uh, drop down bed frame and, and all of these interesting thoughts around the house and i just throw them together in the app and yeah. it suddenly comes up with the full design that is sent over to the construction company that doesn't have to have the highly skilled laborers that yeah. they used to have that would have to draft everything up and and put together and go oh no you can't do that the computer just figures out okay this is what we have to do to achieve that yeah so do you know what the number one um use hmm. What most, the, the, the top square footage usage in a city is, do you know what the purpose of the n- number one square footage of, uh, of a city is dedicated to it's in the U.S.? No, so but I'm guessing, I don't know the right way to phrase it. Yeah, I'm guessing it's either the roadways or parking. It's parking lots. Without it out, it's parking lots. So we're right on the precipice of self-driving cars. Right. Do I need parking lots when I have self-driving cars? I would assume... You need charging lots. <laughs> I do need I do need charging infrastructure. But what yeah. if you drove your car to work? Your car drove you to work, right? Let you out, and then you fire up the app and you you just hit Uber and it goes into Uber mode. You don't park your car. You just yeah, turn your car into Uber mode. Your car drives away and goes and picks somebody up, right? If your car is working all day and when it's not working, it's just charging and and it knows exactly what the charge is it needs to get you home. So don't, it's only charging what's necessary to get you home with a little buffer. I don't need parking lots anymore. Certainly not to the degree that I have them. Right. Right. Think about what that, what that would mean for the cities we all live in. If those parking lots were able to go away effectively, what does that mean? How does that change like residential housing? How does that change apart the number of apartments you can build, the number of multi-tenant houses you can build if, if these giant parking lots went away? Right. The, the buildings, well, and, and storefronts are changing, are in the process of a change too. More and more brick and mortar disappearing because Amazon. Sure. Sure. And, and how can you change shopping experience when I don't need to go to the store anymore? Because I can, I can literally have an automated car show up, open its trunk, advertise who it's picked, doing a pickup for. Someone can come out and drop the groceries in the trunk. And it and it drops them off. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't even have to be full size. So you could have like five of these things abreast in what used to be a lane for a driving car. 
not to mention the fact that all of those cars and the the mini delivery vehicles are working in tandem together to handle flow sure and all kinds of things around that interesting uh, the city of tomorrow right it starts to become really interesting like do do you actually need traffic signals so do you think we're going to run into these kinds of transformations first or are we going to see things like the smart traffic signals that that allow for you know green lights that suddenly shift green lights going the other way so that two vehicles can maintain speed when the the system recognizes that they're not going to hit each other but there's no need to just stop everybody so this guy can go yeah we're already seeing cities um try to use smart traffic lights um the challenge with smart infrastructure ultimately is to make it really effective you have to kind of do the whole city yeah. I say kind of, because if you look at the city, if you look at traffic patterns, traffic patterns are like um, veins and arteries inside your body. Right. Right. Um, you, veins and arteries don't work if the flow stops every 15 centimeters inside your body. Right. So what you really want to do is, is you really want to have some streets that are designed to never stop if you're going east to west, some designed to never stop if you're going west to east, and then same for north and south. In order to do that, you kind of have to make all the lights on that street smart. Okay. Right? If you do okay. that, then it works. The problem that most cities have is they're like, well, we're going to take this intersection and this intersection and this intersection to make them smart. And then they go, well, I don't know why we're not getting the value out of this that we thought we'd get. Well, because, cool, you've made it easier for a bunch of people to go left because you're using smart signals to recognize when the traffic gets backed up. But you've not improved the next light or the light after that. And so they just back up there and stop. And so now what you've done is you've made this left left turn longer. So you've got more people in the intersection now when the light turns red. Ouch. Okay. Oh, yeah, I see that. And so what we really need to do is start thinking about these things as more like the organisms that they, how they operate. Uh-huh. Traffic, the traffic signal is not the important part. The organism, the flow is the important part. But we tend to think about them as the traffic signal and the intersection. That's not the important part. The important part is the flow overall. So how do we manage the flow for 12 signals at the same time? Well, the computer can absolutely do it. We just have to have the willingness to make the investment in the 12 intersections at the same time. So let me let me throw a wrench into this conversation or let me let me try to take that left turn at Albuquerque. And um, you know, I really enjoyed all of the things and and I love what the stuff that you're bringing up. What's the dark side of this? What if not the dark side, what are the things within the lack of um, common agreement on language that um, just are your pet peeves? Or, you know, what are what are those things like generative AI? Or, you know, I almost, I want to I want to talk about AI in general, but I'm I'm interested in what are your pet peeves in either in the language or digital transformation or you know, what are the things that, that the rest of the world are doing that just like cause so there's, you to cringe? Let's, let's say there's five things. So the first okay. is legislation is too rigid and too slow. Okay. Right? We're trying to move at a million miles an hour and legislators are easily five years behind and will always be five years behind. Yeah. Right. Um, there are companies today trying to build autonomous personal air transport. So flying cars. Right. Okay, we can't legislate autonomous vehicles in two dimensions, and they want to add a third dimension. 
And somehow they think they're going to be able to take that to market. Right. So we there's a point at which you can't move faster than legislators. Additionally, I've been a commenter for lobbying orgs on some legislation. Um, and the lack of understanding of technology by legislators is insane. And the lack of understanding of law by technologists is insane. So there's a gulf that's roughly the size of the Grand Canyon where you have one group standing on one side and the other group standing on the other side. And they're both screaming over the Grand Canyon with no one there to build a bridge, right? And so we need to better understand what someone else's job is. We need to be empathetic to the point of someone else's job, the purpose, the reason they exist, and empathetic, which means we have to acknowledge they should exist and they have a valid reason to be here, right? And it's not really just between technology and legislation, although that's my pet peeve, but within your organization itself, right? When you're trying to interface with the business, don't try to just interface with the business. Try to empathize with the person on the other side of the table and understand what they're trying to get done and then phrase the thing you're doing in a way that helps them understand that you're trying to help them get the same thing done, right? So it's that lack of empathy, but specifically my pet peeve is the lack of empathy between technologists and legislators. They're just too slow and they don't understand what we do. And we refuse to understand what they do. We're not good at understanding what, what anybody does that's not a technologist. We're somewhat dismissive. Yeah, it's almost, I, you know, I, in my world, one of the ways that I saw this happening or a version of this, it's not exactly what you're talking about, but like mechanics, mechanics and the IT team. And both of them looked at each other going, wow, you know, I, I can't work on a vehicle like you can. And, and those guys know technology because they're dealing with tech, newer levels of technology, but they're dealing with that physical aspect of it. And here we are dealing with technology, but we're dealing with that, the code and the electronics and, and those pieces of it, the, the mental aspects of it. And, and they're, both sides were just really good at what they did, but they'd look at each other and go, I can't do that. <laughs> and, well, and more so they'd look at each other and go, I don't understand that. And I'm not going to learn it. Yeah. I'm not even going to try to learn it. Correct. Correct. And you don't need to learn it, but you do need to understand it. You do need to empathize with it. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, my second one, I, I'll leave it at two. Cause, cause otherwise it's going on forever. Um, my second one, and I may have just forgotten what it was, but but it, it's oh yeah. So I'm a big fan of Douglas Adams. Wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, yeah. And in one of his books, he talks about um, the mountain problem. So there's a small village. Um, they're very proud of their village. Everything is perfectly laid out, perfectly manicured, and they continue to win the best village of the year. However, they also live next to what they consider the ugliest mountain in the entire universe. And they and it spoils the view from their otherwise perfect village. And so they hire magicians and wizards from all around that claim they can make the mountain disappear. And all these magicians and all these wizards, they're casting spells and praying to gods and, and, and lighting fires and sacrificing virgins. And the mountain, no matter what they do, never disappears. Finally, one guy says, I guarantee I can make it disappear. And they say, okay, look, like we're pretty fed up. If you don't make it disappear, we're going to kill you. Nope, I guarantee I can make it disappear. Just give me 90 days. And he tries everything he can think of. And finally, on the last day, he gets everybody he knows together, gets the ugliest pink paint he can think of, and they go paint the mountain pink. The next morning, the villagers wake up. They see a pink mountain determined, oh, that's definitely someone else's problem. Declare the mountain disappeared and pay the man. 
because <laughs> it's someone else's problem. And Douglas Adams then just then coined a phrase I love, which is someone else's problem. And that is something where it's so obviously not your problem that you just ignore that it exists to begin with. And SEPs or someone else's problems are my other pet peeve. Security kind of became an SEP, right? Which has led us down this path that we find ourselves in, right? I, I only take it to this point and someone really should take it to the next step. And then somebody else goes, well, I only take it to this point, leaving that gulf in between. And that gulf in between is things like interns hard coding simple passwords, right? Leaving APIs open, right? For random amounts of corporate data to be sliced and stolen, right? Sharing passwords, yeah. all the security things that we read are all SCPs. It's someone else's job to secure the IoT network. It's someone else's job to make sure the fire control systems are not connected to the, to the core network. It's someone, someone else's, else's job. job to make sure that people clock in and clock out or, or put in, use the password rules that we wrote. <laughs> right. hundred percent. SCPs. Yeah. Big pet peeve of mine. Right. It's someone else's job to understand the definition. It's someone else's job. It's someone else's job. It's someone else's job. Okay. So I've seen that in life way too often. And um, being a person who hates that myself, but I've also found that I've, I can drown myself in someone else's problem and never accomplish what I'm actually being paid for. Got a solution to that <laughs> or thoughts you, around you that? Drown, yeah, you still drown yourself. You just drown. Uh, the, the, honest, honestly, if we all had the attitude that we were, if 15% more of us had the willingness to tilt at windmills, we'd be able to make so much progress. Right. The the problem ultimately is if you're the only one tilting at windmills inside your organization, you're the crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> 50% of people are tilting at windmills inside your organization, then tilting at windmills is supported and promoted. And then everybody else feels like, well, I mean, this thing's bothered me too, but I didn't want to step out of my lane. Okay. Now I can step out of my lane. And now I can fix it. I, I yep. see it fixed for it. Let's get it done. Correct. Right. Yes. This would make my life easier. Right. This would make it this would make it better. I'm happy to do that. But currently we act with fear because people who tilt at windmills, well, they're not necessarily protected inside an organization. Yeah. We need to change. All, too, all too often they're not. All too often I I've seen both sides of it because typically I was the one that they would call in and say, Look, this I've got this problem. Find a solution. Go. Whatever it is. And and so other people would learn to go, up oh, somebody else's problem or not my job. And suddenly, hey, Mike. Yeah. 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 And we're far too risk adverse. Right. Right. The few times I've worked for consulting organizations, I'd go talk to customers and I'd be like, hey, we could do this X, Y, and Z. They're like, okay, cool. Where has another healthcare company done that? Well, manufacturing does this all the time. Yeah, but they're not a healthcare company. Right. Technology is just technology, guys. It's, it's yeah. still going to work fine. Uh, we, don't, we don't trust it because not another healthcare company's done it. And so what you're telling me is you don't ever want to be a leader in the space. You just want to be a follower. That's the weirdest attitude I've ever, I've ever heard of. And yet every organization does it to some degree. Yeah. Because right? they're, so, they don't want to pay for the recall. Cause they're, they're, well, they're, they're just terrified. Yeah. They're, they're right? terrified of creating recalls and to use some of the examples from earlier. 
Yeah. We're told all day long, every day, be agile, which means fail fast. Does not mean succeed fast. It means fail fast. Right. And yet we're so risk adverse, we miss the value of failing fast. Hey guys, this is Phil Howard, founder of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I just want to take a few minutes to address something. It has become fairly apparent, I'm sure all of you will agree, over the years that slow vendor response, vendor response times, vendors in general, the the average is mediocre. Support is mediocre. Mediocrity is the name of the game. Not only is this a risk to your network security, because I've seen vendors on numerous occasions share sensitive information, but there's also a direct correlation to your budget and your company's bottom line. Not to mention the sales reps that are trying to sell you and your CEO and your CFO on a daily basis. That causes a whole nother realm of problems that we don't have time to address. Our back office program at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we've put together specifically for IT leadership, and it's on a mission to eliminate this mediocrity. And the best part is that we're doing this in a way that will not cost your IT department a dime. So if you'd like us to help you out, get better pricing, better support, and jump on pressing issues in minutes, not days, then contact us now so we can get on a, a call with you and conduct a value discovery session where we find out what you have, why you have it, and where you want to go and how we can improve your your life, your IT department, and your company's bottom line. What you're going to end up with is, number one, just faster support from partners who care about your organization's uptime and bottom line. And because you're going to be able to access our $1.2 billion in combined buying power, you'll be able to benefit uh, significantly from historical data. And on top of that, you'll also benefit from the skills of hundreds of on-demand experts that we have working behind the scenes that are all attached to our back office support program. So if you'd like, again, none of this is ever going to cost you a dime. At the very least, it's going to open your, your eyes to what's possible. Let our back office team provide you the high-touch solutions and support that your IT team deserves so that you can stop calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND for support. Now, if you're wondering, what does this apply to? This applies to your ISPs, your telecom providers, all your application providers, whether you're a Microsoft shop or a Google shop, what you might be paying for AWS, even Azure, co-location space, any of those vendors that you're paying a monthly bill to, we can help you with. Hey, it's Greg, the Frenchman secretly managing the podcast behind the curtain. To request your one-on-one -on -one call, contact us at internet at popularit.net. And remember, it will never cost you a dime. So I, I have another interesting thought for you, because some of the things that we've talked about or, or question, question and or thought, I haven't formulated it well enough to know whether it's which one of the two it is, um, shared experience. When I was growing up, we had a lot of shared experiences because you know, there was only the local movie theater. There were only three channels on TV. There was only, you know, so many different things that we could do. So we all had those shared experiences. Saturday mornings were the only time that we got to watch cartoons. Sure. And, and now with that, um, with that huge divergence of information that's out there and those 30 second bites that everybody's going through now a shared experience is so diversified 
and and it's it's almost become hard to find people with a shared experience. And when I find somebody that has a shared experience, then it's almost a bonding event over, oh, you watched that series too, or you binged on that series too. So now, you know, I, I can't find as many of my cohorts um, in the world. Uh, does that bring any thoughts to your head? I mean, it, the worst the worst thing that we could have done was, uh, I'm going to say this in a way that I don't actually mean, but it's expedient. Okay. We did a terrible thing by shutting society down during COVID. We also did the necessary thing by shutting society down during COVID. So I don't want people to miss to misconstrue what I'm saying. COVID was awful. Half a million people died. Shutting society down helped slow the death. But what shutting society da- down did was it pushed us further into echo chambers. Right? The whole of the internet is designed to be an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I go listen to what I want to hear. Correct. Society is not designed to be an echo chamber. Going into the office, not designed to be an echo chamber. I don't choose who I work with, right? People from of all different um, personalities show up to the office. People of all different um, backgrounds and diversity show up to the office. Sure, they may not be as diverse as we want them to be. And that's a whole nother podcast that we could do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but they're more diverse than just us. And yet when you get online, what you get is just you. You get an echo chamber of the one thing that you're looking for. That's not reality, right? That's a dangerous slice of reality. Sounds like another uh, um, dislike for the marketeering, or, or would you call it architecture? <laughs> architecture, architecture, right? So, so, so the problem that we have is we're, we've now, we're now in a situation where we do this all day long, right? We stare at screens. Right? And all I know about you is the, with it contained tightly within the conversations that we've had. Right. Right. We're, I feel like we're getting along great. We could be great friends. The reality of the situation is that may not be true at all. Yeah. We haven't right. talked about our politics, our faith, no, or right. any of those right. important topics. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Right. Things that, that may or may not let us get along. And Apple or, or Android. Right. <laughs> uh, Apple. We've spent so much time. In the last, you know, decade, picking our sides, none of which matter. Not one. There's not one of them that actually matters. We're just convinced by the people turning the screws that those things matter. There's a lot of money to be made if you're Apple diehard versus Android diehard. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of money to be made if you pick a political one political party or the other. There's a lot of money to be made on any side to an argument. You know where there's no money to be made? If you're in the middle, if if you're willing to take on all of those other people's jobs, <laughs> there's no money to be made off of you. If you're willing to listen, there's no money to be made off of you. If you're thoughtful, right? If you're considering, right? There's, there's, that's gotta be untrue. There's gotta be ways to do it, but, but the easy money is uh, sure. all of those other places you're talking about. There's right. got it. I mean, those of us that are, and I'm, throwing myself in there, whether I am or not, <laughs> those of us that are thoughtful and thinking about that and trying to be of service, um, we're, we have money and we're trying to spend it and we're trying to spend it in the right ways. So there's got to be ways to, uh, to capitalize. But, but we're also the people that are the most likely to peel back the label and go, what's wait, wait, there's two labels. <laughs> hey, you know, that fair trade chocolate label that 
is on all the chocolate you like to buy and makes you feel good, it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. Not a damn thing. Right? They still use slave labor to make all that chocolate. Yeah. And we're the people that are likely to peel back that label and go, oh, that's just designed to make you feel better. It's not actually designed to make you do better. And now I can't have my favorite chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have to make the decision, right? Yeah. Do I cut out chocolate or do I deal with the fact that these these big mega corporations aren't acting in the best interest of the world and 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 suffer through it? Right. Like like, you know, I, I don't want to get off on a rant. I could easily yeah. I could easily start a new rant. I've Oh, I've stopped you from too many rants as it is already, and not even really. <laughs> um, and it, it has been a wonderful conversation. I think we're about it at that time. So, you know, I I truly enjoyed this conversation, Howard. This has been great. Um, you have opened my eyes and helped me understand and and define quite a few things for me. Um, and it it definitely was not the typical talk. Um, oh, great. So like I said, you set the bar kind of hard saying you had 200 episodes. I was like, oh no, I got to bring, I got to bring something new and interesting here. So see, I had it easy. I was at episode number 89. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got to talk about growing up in Los Alamos where, you know, I glow in the dark. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but you know, in all honesty, there were aspects of, I heard some of the same message that I've heard across most of these but you stated it in a much clearer and concise way and hopefully a way that those those out there listening can be more empathetic to the person across the table and understand what and why because it's one of the most important messages that helps helped me succeed at what I do is being able to listen to the other person understand what and why because there's so many times that that I'd see people come in asking for help from the help desk and and we'd look at it and go, well, they're wrong, and and just stop because we Correct. can't see or we're not willing to dig in any deeper, and and trust the person when when they say this isn't working. No, it's working. You're wrong, and and just stopping right there, and then having that contention, mm -hmm. and no and longer having empathy and going, okay, there's a reason this person's telling me this. What and is they're it? frustrated. Right. No, no one shows up because they're happy and their day is going great. Yeah, I mean, they well, do. They true. bring cookies, and that's great. I love it when they bring cookies. Yeah, but the rest of the time they're they're frustrated, right? So empathize. Just have yeah. some empathy and go. This person's really frustrated. Sure, they're wrong. That's fine. They're allowed to be wrong. Empathize with their frustration. Fix their frustration. Don't worry about fixing the thing they say is wrong. Because again, right. if you'd asked a, a thousand people when they stepped out of a cab, they'd have given you the wrong answer. Yeah, and the right answer was still there though. Yep, it was just hidden in there, and and trying to get to that hidden answer, or that wish, and trying to get them to verbalize that wish is is a skill in itself. That it is. That it is. That's for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking your some time out of your day and spending it with us and, and sharing with the uh, the audience of dissecting popular IT nerds. You know, I'd invite all of our listeners to comment, rate the podcast, um, let us know what you thought on the iTunes or Spotify stores, and uh, wherever you're getting the con the uh, copy of the podcast from. We really appreciate the support of the program and the time you invested into nerding out with us geeks. So, thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>